When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club on The Imperfectionists by Tom Rackman. I'm Julia Turner, and I'm joined today by Slate's television critic, Troy Patterson. Hi, Troy. Hi, Julia. Uh, and by our foreign editor, June Thomas. Hello, June. Hey, Julia. Um, glad to have you guys here. So The Imperfectionists is a novel set mostly in Rome at the offices of a newspaper that resembles fairly closely the International Herald Tribune. It's an English-language international daily. The author, Tom Rackman, worked briefly at the International Herald Tribune, and this is his fiction debut. The structure of the novel is a bit like a collection of short stories. There are 11 vignettes uh, that focus on people who work at the paper or, in one case, read it religiously. And then the vignettes are set off by brief passages about the family that founded the paper and its fortunes in the during the 50 or so years that it's been in existence. The book, despite being a fiction debut, was met with rave reviews, particularly from the New York Times, who put it on the front cover of the Sunday Times book review uh, with a rave by Christopher Buckley, who wrote that the book is, is so good, I had to read it twice simply to figure out how he pulled it off. I still haven't answered that question, nor do I know how someone so young Rackman turns out to be 35, though he looks even younger in his author photo, could have acquired such a precocious grasp of human foibles. I almost feel sorry for Rackman because a debut of this order sets the bar so high. So that's quite something to read before you <laughs> yeah. launch into reading a book of fiction on your summer vacation. I'm, to start, just curious to know what you guys think of the book. Troy, did you like it? I liked it okay. You know, I ran into June the other day when I was only sort of three or four chapters or vignettes in, and I was pretty high on it then. Uh, it seems to me somewhat more successful than your usual kind of novel in stories or collection of linked stories. And there's sort of a briskness to it and an efficiency to the prose that I admire. That said, at some point, I think that my stroll through the book began to feel a bit as if I were sort of wading through it, um, <laughs> that I began to feel the sort of 
burden that I often feel reading a novel in stories, which is um, sort of the dissatisfaction that there's not any real rising action. So it's an interesting book. Uh, you just use the word vacation, and it's certainly a vacation book, if nothing else, right? Yeah, it's a good light read. I mean, I'm sort of relieved to hear you say that you were frustrated by the short story structure. I, I tend to dislike short stories, and I feel like that quest for a driving narrative frustrated me, too. I, I wanted it to be a little bit more pointed. But I, I cut you off about vacation narrative. Uh, no, I'm just... Uh, there's a kind of writing here that I... That doesn't enter my life very much, um, which is the sort of the piece of fiction that is sort of crisply written. It's not a genre novel, mm-hmm. but it's it's not a, a literary novel either, which is kind of refreshing in a way. That mm-hmm. it, it, this is a book without any literary pretensions, but it doesn't have any literary ambitions either, really. Or its literary ambitions are modest, let's say. Huh. That's uh, an interesting way to think of it. Yeah. What, did you like it, June? I did on a certain level. I enjoyed it while I was reading it. I found it very readable. It was a page-turner, which is great. I didn't want to really do, as Christopher Buckley said, you know, reread it to figure out how he did it. It didn't seem all that complicated to me, which is good. But after a while, it bugged me. And by some of the things that happened in the book bugged me. And by the time I got to the end, I was actually sort of full of hatred. Full of hatred? Why full did you hate? Hatred. What did you hate? I felt manipulated, which, of course, is the purpose of a novel, I understand, or, or of a piece of fiction. But I felt that I was being messed with too much by things that weren't even happening in front of me. And also, I was really bugged by the way that women are portrayed in this book. Those are both interesting points. So you, so to take the first one first, the storytelling of the novel, because it's in these short stories, there's a lot of things that happen off screen that aren't mm-hmm. explicitly described that mm-hmm. you sort of come to understand have happened based on, on subsequent stories. Which yeah. of those bothered you? I guess it was it, like a lot of things with this book. It was an accumulation of things. If things had only happened once, I would have rolled with it and just kind of carried on in, in my sort of trance of enjoyment. But... You know, the third or fourth time that something big happens off stage, you know, and I'll give Rackman some credit here. Perhaps it's an allegory or whatever the appropriate literary term is for working at a newspaper where all day you're sitting in a room somewhere waiting for things to happen somewhere else and then you deal with them. So maybe it was this big, clever thing. <laughs> or maybe he just, you know, it was part of his efficiency. You know, these are stories that are usually about 20 pages you get a lot going on in them. But, for example, Arthur Gopal, the obituary writer, you know, you get this really very cute story of how he's a slacker at work, but he loves his daughter with the most fantastic name ever of Pickle, and he really comes alive when he's with her. And then he goes off to do an interview for an obituary, and she dies off screen. And you think, wow, okay, well, you know, I guess that sort of thing. And then it happens again and again, like something huge happens when we're not there. And you think, you know, is this now, you're just starting to make me think that you just didn't want to write that. The, uh, the, the, the example you, you chose, um, you, you pointed at something that I actually like. I, I think that that's both, um, you know, if there's one reason to reread the book, it's to study how uh, Rackman does this 
nice quick exposition. Hmm. But also, I think that if the child dies, yep. like in the body of the story, then things can get lacrimose. Yes, yes. Um, and I think I, it's, I think that. it's sort of more emotionally powerful that it goes unsaid. It's unstated and thus understated and allows us to concentrate on sort of how the loss affects Arthur. In that case, I will give you that. And in fact, in another example, which I am almost dread to mention because it feels like it's so unexpected at the end, but not in a way that, oh, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see that coming because it's bloody random, is the thing that happens at the end. The the final story. I see, I, I can't even bring myself to say it to the people in this room who I know have read it. You know, what happens to poor little Schopenhauer? That's just awful. And like... Dude, come on. I mean, okay, it was set up because he loves his dog. We get it. He loves his dog more than anything. He doesn't love anything else. He only loves his dog. But come on, killing the poor little fucker. I mean, that's just not right. <laughs> I'm glad that we were spared the, uh, the well, Schopenhauer yeah, yeah. murder scene. Well, now that you say, you know, you're right. Now that you've pointed out it would have been really horrible to see this, it would have met. Yeah, but it still felt like a cheat to me. I mean, I thought, it, you know, I actually think he was clever, Rackman, in the manner in which he was able to construct a narrative of events that we don't see and and things that we don't read about explicitly. And I, th- I, I think, like Troy, I admire that economy and efficiency. I think the thing that frustrated me with the book, I mean, you talk about it not having literary ambitions, Troy. I, I, I wasn't sure what its thematic ambitions were, in a way. I felt like I, I wasn't sure whether this was supposed to be a satire of journalism as newspaper journalism lies on its deathbed, or it's really a workplace novel that happens to be set in the world of journalism because that's a world with which the author is familiar mm-hmm. or whether it's really sort of a novel about human loneliness that had to be set at a workplace and happened to have that workplace be journalism and I I, I couldn't quite I, I you know I, I think a lot of the reviewers who've raved about it have really defended the book and said this is much more than a collection of short stories it's much more than the sum of its parts it really adds up to something wonderful and I I found myself frustrated trying to figure out what it was really adding up to and what why he had stitched these stories together and why we cared about the story of this newspaper and its mm-hmm. founding and its demise and the people who worked there it does newspaper does seem like a very good choice not only because it's Ratman's world and his family's world but also because. This is a book, among other things, about nostalgia. And if there's any better profession to really marinate in nostalgia at this point, it's got to be newspapering and journalism. And so there's a lot of nostalgia for all kinds of things at various points in the book. But this feels like a completely pointless publication. And, you know, the the attachment that people have to it feels in a way pointless, but also sort of romantic. Uh, the newspaper at the, the core newspaper, of the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know. Troy, did you read it as a novel of journalism or a workplace novel? Or what? what uh, did, did you think it added up to more than a string of short stories? Uh, of the three options you presented before, <laughs> I would uh, I would press three for loneliness. Uh, <laughs> that That's where the uh, I see the book's sort of thematic integrity, if you will. I don't think it qualifies as a satire. It's, it's much too sort of fond... Uh, it, it's not sort of like engaging critically with sort of journalism as practiced, right? It, it sort of it sort of teases parts of newsroom culture and and it gives us a, a few sort of uh, loud nitwits to laugh at. But even those nitwits are, I think, meant to be charming. They're they're yeah. There's there's but, definitely fondness there. Although the the 
revelation at the end of the novel that, in fact, the newspaper was never founded as a pure journalistic enterprise. It was a it was founded by Cyrus Ott, the self-made millionaire at the head of a of a American industry who founds the newspaper purely so he has an excuse to hang out with the woman he did not marry in Rome because he installs her as the number two editor there Mm -hmm. and her husband is the number one uh, and that journalism was never at the heart of this enterprise does seem to undercut all the fondness and nostalgia a bit. Yeah, but I don't know. If you if you build the Taj Mahal for your wife, you've still made a nice building. (laughs) But this, I mean, I can't tell whether every reader will understand or will have the feeling as I did that this is a very silly enterprise. I mean, I don't know if everybody will think, wait, you're cutting a copy editor and you've got a corrections editor and an obituary editor and somebody who just does puzzle wuzzle and you don't have a website. Like, I mean, I couldn't help censor my like response to this ridiculous 12-page publication with 10,000 readers that his business seems ridiculous. You wanted to review its mission statement. Exactly. I wanted to take Abby Pinola and say, are you out of your mind? You're cutting a copy editor? She, this is the character who's the um, the financial officer. The, they refer to his accounts payable, but she's the chief financial officer of the newspaper. I'm interested to hear actually what you, while, while we're talking about her, what did you guys think of her story? This is the story where she finds herself on a flight to Atlanta to the home office sitting next to the copy editor. She's just fired. It takes her several minutes into the flight to figure out who this person is that she's trying desperately to ignore and not engage in conversation with. What did you guys think of that segment? I thought it was yet another case. I was surprised by this, that this is another bitter, desperate, inadequate, vindictive woman. And in this case, a sort of a trick is played on her, which is to say that this man who is sitting next to her on the plane, Dave Kenner, I think his name is, or Kenning, um, he's a copy editor who she has fired. At first, she's always reluctant to talk to people because she's somewhat misanthropic. She doesn't like to talk to people on planes. Then she finds him incredibly charming, and she's surprised, and eventually she's also surprised that she sort of wants to have a romance with him. Then she realizes that he's actually taking a job in California, so that's not going to be possible. Again, she gets bitter and mean and vindictive, but he wins her over. He seduces her. He gets her to, you know, strip down to her skanky bra and granny panties, and then he more or less says, ha-ha. And if it had been the only case where some woman was bitter and and all of those nasty adjectives, I think I would have thought one thing, but this book is packed with women who are cold and vindictive and nasty and incompetent and who just spend all their time on work rather than their families, even though they're actually pretty bad at their jobs if we don't take their word for it, but look at what they do. And so... I'm glad you mentioned was, this, June, because I've, I've, my like misogyniometer was totally flaring up as I was reading this book, but then I wondered if it was just on the fritz. <laughs> Troy, what was your perspective on the, the various... Uh, lonely, sad, bitter women. I mean, there are a lot of lonely, sad, bitter men in the book, too. But But they're often made sad by being screwed around with by women. Hmm. I'm going to take exception to what June says, only to say that I think what sort of defines the the problem with how these female characters are constructed is that they're um, they're more pathetic than bitter, I think, generally. Some of them have, are pathetic and thus bitter. (laughs) Yeah. um, They're either pathetic and bitter, or pathetic and um, and delusional. Yeah, yeah. That's the that's uh, they're they're problematic. I think misogyny is a very strong word, but 
I think maybe the problem here is that Tom Rackman isn't extremely interested in well, he's interested in sort of performing character studies in a very yeah. sort of limited way. Yeah. I think that part of the the book's nature is that he's presenting a series of caricatures really or mm-hmm. sort of um these sketches that are just salvaged from caricature only because of a few sort of like vivid details and muscular verbs <laughs> um you know from the in the first chapter Lloyd Burko is the sort of four times divorced aged sort of technological incompetent that we've seen in books before right. uh one of the pathetic women uh Hardy Benjamin the the sort of meek business reporter um who sort of latches on to this sponge of a hippie clown boyfriend is another and so I, I, may I, may I interrupt you though just to ahead, just yeah. to to look at kind of a list of these women so there's Hardy she is so desperate she takes up with a man who has already stolen from her who demeans her in front of her friends in order to she more or less buys his affection and that of his friends by taking him in by feeding him and his friends she gives up her friend because she doesn't want to hear the sort of you know the true picture of what he's like but she's she, you know she won't even look at herself in the mirror she kind of hates herself so she she does this for this man Kathleen who is presented as she's being the editor she's the editor-in-chief and she's presented as being you know her her hard work is necessary for the effective running of the paper although you know again when you look at the decisions that she makes they don't always sometimes they're smart but they don't always seem smart she's just she's a workaholic she's cold Ruby Zaga who is a copy editor she is she she hates everyone because she thinks everyone hates her and they do and it's not fair but well she doesn't exactly make them like her and she she is definitely pathetic there's Abby I mean just again there don't seem to be that many other options for women it is this kind of accretion because I agree they are character studies and if there were more women who weren't a disaster I would I don't think I this wouldn't have this alarm wouldn't have started. Right. Wouldn't, well, so wouldn't Troy, have drowned but, out everything but, but else. But Troy, were you saying that that what he's doing is he's sort of taking sort of a type, a, the type of the lonely enraged spinster, or the type of the lonely pathetic spinster, and then trying to get inside the. Uh, in fact, that's part of how he uses the office, right? Is there's the type who this person is perceived to be at the office, and then inevitably the stories wove into yeah. their home life, where we begin to see the richer actual person behind the type, but. As a result, we have a lot of types that are raising June's hackles, <laughs> even if possibly he complicates them. Uh, I'm attempting to say that he complicates the types, but only just a little bit, and that maybe um, maybe the more apt uh, descriptor is it is it George Orwell who says about Charles Dickens characters that they're flat but they vibrate very fast. <laughs> um, these characters are sort of maybe descendants of those. That's interesting. I mean, I I, I found myself struck by the wild variation in tone among the, the various stories. And I found some of them to be really moving and effective and realist portraits of, of interesting people in what would be an example dire of straits. Of I particularly loved the story about Herman Cohen, who's the corrections editor, who at the office is a complete and utter tyrant. And, a ty- you know, anybody who likes journalism or likes words likes to read about people who wail against the misuse of the word literally and <laughs> whatnot. So he's he's the strikes fear into the hearts of everyone in the office. When he returns to home, he's a total pussycat. He's a bit cowed by his wife. Uh, and that that seemed a bit obvious, that contrast. But the part of the story that I really loved is the contrast 
is his relationship with his oldest friend, this guy Jimmy Pep, who he's met when he was being bullied in high school. They've remained friends their whole lives. His wife doesn't understand what he sees in him. Mm-hmm. And the way that the story unravels Herman's inflated vision of his friend and romantic vision of his friend and what this friend has actually turned out to be, I thought was really beautiful and well-drawn. And that the portrait of Herman's final realization that this guy who he imagined as some kind of Saul Bellow, Hemingway, romantic, literary, louche figure Mm -hmm. is actually just kind of a paranoiac sad sack with no talent. Yeah. No, I really like that story. And I, I, it it was... A lovely kind of example of modesty. There's not much modesty in this book. People think they're good at their jobs when they're clearly not. But Herman is a very modest man. He doesn't tout his own, you know, amazing skills. He's a great cook. He really knows Rome. He's just got, you know, many, many wonderful qualities. And he doesn't see his own good qualities. He just sees the actually not really present good qualities in his you know, a man who he worshipped as a young boy. You know, he's never lost his hero worship of him. I really like that story, but it was one of the few cases where it was a quality. It was celebrating a quality rather than, you know, pointing out a flaw. I would also say that um, in his capacity for self-delusion, Herman's every bit as pathetic as as yeah. Hardy. With the, yeah. the difference, I, th- I think things seem a little bit funkier with the women in the book because their pathos is tied in with romance. Mm. Yeah, There's a lot of spinster pathos as opposed to... I mean, being deluded about the nature of your oldest friendship is like an interesting and unusual thing to be pathetic about and to write about. Uh, to write about that relationship felt unexpected and surprising mm-hmm. and fresh and interesting. To write about, like, three unmarried women who are sad and desperate <laughs> seemed... Uh, I would have I would have questioned that balance in the mix, as we say, <laughs> in the newsroom. But then you were, you were, Julia, you were going to talk about one that you didn't find. So. Oh, so anyway, I thought that was like this incredibly interesting realist portrait. I also liked the, the story about Arthur Gopal, the obituary writer who loses his daughter for similar reasons. I thought it was an interesting portrait of how grief can just create total discontinuity in life between what what happened before and what happened after. He, he basically becomes a completely different person. He mm-hmm. becomes totally driven about his work. Those stories seemed unexpected and interesting. Then there were, uh, you know, the the series of stories around spinsterhood which I thought had varying levels of quality and then there were uh, there was one story which has been much praised in the reviews about Winston Chung who is this primatology graduate student who's decided he'd really rather be a foreign correspondent and gets himself to Cairo where he sets out to be a stringer for the newspaper but finds himself completely taken advantage of by a guy named Rich Snyder who is attempting to be um, you know who is kind of an old foreign correspondent hand and who completely takes advantage of the young guy. I, I just hated this chapter. I thought it was not funny. I thought that type is the oldest type in the book to make fun of. I didn't think there were any new jokes there. I thought Evelyn Waugh did it better in Scoop. And I thought tonally it was... I just felt out of step. I mean, the, the book is really good and smart when it talks about people and the delusions they've lived with and how they either come to reckon with them or don't. And then this just sort of felt like, well, I'm doing a book about a newspaper, so I've got to have a, a like buffoonish foreign correspondent in here. I don't know. Did you like the, that chapter? It, it was juvenile, but it had some pace to it, didn't it? Yeah. That's that's what I, I fell for, too. You're absolutely right, Julia. I can't argue with you. It's out of... You know, it's out of tone with the rest of the book. It, we've seen it before, but I still enjoyed it because he did it pretty well, and it kind of did fit in with the 
some of the themes of the book. I mean, it is about delusion. What the hell was Winston thinking? He has no business being a journalist. He can't even express himself. He can't talk to people. He has no idea what he's doing. So it's got that delusion thing. It's also a little bit got the, hey, you got played by a woman thing because his landlady, in a way, and his sort of advisor, she could have, I think her name is Zena. She could have spared him all of this. It seems like she may have brought the whole Snyder experience on him. He happens to be a, an ex of hers, and it's, she really wants the job. Now, as it happens, she's really qualified for it, and she does seem to be a very good journalist, and she's smart, but, you know, she's really played Winston. You know, done him a favor because he really should not be in the business. But um, So it has a little bit of some of the other themes. But I agree, it, it was different, but I enjoyed it because it did have zip, and it, it did make me laugh, too. I really hated that guy, and that's got to be, that's kind of an achievement. I actually prefer the, the character of uh, the sort of young, weak Winston to the to the cartoonishly brash yeah. sort of big-footing journalist, on, on which note I'm going to read sort of a, a, a small passage here on, on 147 on what happens with Winston when he does have his first proper journalistic experience sort of affected by, by Zena. Winston has no accreditation to get into a press conference and is stopped at the door of the Arab League. Zena does her utmost but cannot pull him in with her. Eventually, she sneaks a Palestinian undersecretary out to him. The undersecretary, who speaks English, patiently explains the goings-on inside. Winston scrambles his pen across the page, but has never taken down quotes before, and finds speech unexpectedly rapid. Within three words, the sentence is off and running while his pen struggles behind. Eventually, the undersecretary excuses himself. What did you get? Zana asks. Winston studies his notes, which consist of opening phrases. We believe that, or the real problem is, or what you must know is, followed by unintelligible scrawl. A couple of good bits, he replies. That was great. I mean, you're, that, you're and that that hit close to home. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I can relate. I mean, well, I, I, you're right. You're right that the Winston character, in some ways, redeems the Rich Snyder character being such a caricature. And he has also like it, one of the things that I wish there was more of was kind of connection between the stories, and at least maybe in a shallow way, I want to sort of think, oh, he popped up before. He was the guy, and you know, he did talk to editor-in-chief Kathleen at the beginning of her chapter and so that gave me a little bit of a thrill I wished there had been more of that kind of stuff that I could put together so that was another mini thrill about it yeah I mean the, the links between the, the chapters were a bit a bit few and far between which were uh, which were your favorites Troy I think you've already ticked them off the list um, Arthur Gobal is sort of tender almost a little too tender mm-hmm. Herman Cohn is really quite memorable and uh, I'm gonna. Do I have to pick a third? <laughs> <laughs> no, we can just leave it there. Doesn't it start with those two too? Yeah, that's. Um, th- those are. Um, those are two of the first four. I think that maybe one of the reasons that the book can feel kind of fatiguing or to start yielding diminishing returns is that it's it's structured a bit like a newspaper story, and that all the best yeah. stuff is in the lead. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely true. What about yours, Julia? Well, I think I've said my favorites. I mean, the one thing I would say about the Pathetic Women trilogy of Ruby, Abby, and Hardy is that I actually, I sort of liked aspects of both the Hardy and Abby stories. I thought Hardy's pathetic self-delusions were rendered really interestingly. There's a lot, it spends a lot less time in her own head and in her own running narrative of what her life is like, and there's a lot more factual description of how she meets this 
blonde dreadlock having schmo and how she you know sort of begins a relationship with him despite him being a complete sponging idiot and and the story of how she sort of falls out with her friends because they would pierce her delusions and she would rather preserve this silly romance um i thought it was actually kind of well told but I, the, the Ruby Saga story is like an, the, the, the structure and the tone of it is basically an endless internal monologue of her rage and anger. And I just found it completely ineffective and poorly drawn and not mm-hmm. quite believable. And and th- I think that it was that story that really soured some of the other yeah. ones for me. Because I also – I think it's possible to read – I mean, people – so, so at the end of the Abby Panola story, she ends up in the hotel room with Dave. I think it's Belling, actually, yeah, the, the copy editor that right. she fires. He's, he, she's gotten undressed, and he's standing at the foot of her bed, and he says, tell me this, accounts payable. She freezes at the name. Why, he says, why of all the people there, accounts payable, did you go and get me fired? So explain me that. And I think, you know, we're supposed to, we're supposed to wonder about whether uh, he's just kind of conned her into the bedroom in order to have this confrontation with her or... Whether this is sort of a uh, a come on, I don't know. Come on, but I I didn't necessarily read this as as like an O Henry twist of like he'd been conning her all the time. It seemed right. plausible that they actually had had this nice connection on the plane, and that he'd slowly put together that it was she who who was responsible for his demise, and that he wanted to confront this elephant in the room. I think it's the larger structure of the story that supports the narrower interpretation exactly. that he was just being a jerk to her because she ends up in the final chapter where the paper has been closed. We realize that it was her decision to to close the paper. Although I suppose you could interpret that either way, too. Perhaps she's closing the paper because she um, is pissed at all of the bad things that have happened to her there, or perhaps she's closing it so she can move to San Diego and uh, well, she shack says up she's with not, Dave Belling. She says she's not moving, though. She's going to stay in Italy and ah. not move her kids. But ah. the, I, I agree. I, at first, I wasn't sure. The next, you know, the, the events the next chapter made me question it, but also the fact that he doesn't take off his clothes and he kind of exposes her, the, the undies that she's not fond of or that she's embarrassed by. But yeah, there was a, there was a pleasing possibility that there might be an alternative. What did you all think of the chapter about Ornella? Is it yes, Ornella, the reader? I thought it was really interesting to include a reader. That was very cool, and I was very I enjoyed the fact that she. There's a thing in this. Um, the thing with Ornella is that uh, her son Dario, who also was Kathleen's lover for what seven years, a number of years when they were first... um, Kathleen, the editor, started at the paper as an intern, along with Ruby and Dario, and she rose up through the magazine, went back to D.C., came back as the editor-in-chief in uh, in triumph. Um, But when she was first at the paper, she was living with Dario, who's Ornella's son. So that's kind of... Ornella has multiple connections to to the characters. And the thing about Ornella is that she never... I think the phrase that they use is... She never learned the technique of newspaper reading. So she reads them like a book. Every issue she reads from cover to cover. It's only a 12-page piece, so I guess that's doable. And naturally, she's years and years behind, and she reads them in order, and she reads every word. And, that's and she really, has, like, the most draconian spoiler policy of anyone yes. in the universe. She won't let anybody in her life tell her what has happened in the world since whatever day of the newspaper she's on. So the, the setting of the book is sort of mid-aughts, and mm-hmm. she's still stuck in early 1994. And that was all very cool. But then when we got to the sort of, well, what happened on that, because there's a crisis because there's an issue missing, and then we realize, well, we eventually learn what happened to that issue. Something big in her life happened. But 
I wasn't just I didn't like her very much. I wasn't that interested in other than like these fabulous it's a great concept. But then like it just didn't do much with it. She wasn't I mean, I I would use this chapter to take exception to Troy's notion that this is not a satire of journalism. The fact that the only reader of this godforsaken <laughs> newspaper that we meet in the book is a delusional Miss Havisham-esque figure who's living in the past and uh, burying herself in the newspaper in order to uh, run away from family misfortunes. And also the fact that, you know, what the, what the larger notion of it suggests, that if that a, that a newspaper inherently has too much information in it for one person to consume and it's useless to read it mm. um, is disheartening. Although there's a lovely moment, I think in Craig Menzies' chapter where he is a workaholic, he's the news editor and let me just find his chapter. Well, while you're finding it, have yes. you ever read a newspaper cover to cover? <laughs> no. Try it sometime. That, that happened to me once on... I was at the DMV on a Tuesday <laughs> with nothing but the New York Times. It's interesting to like read box scores of sports you don't care about. And It would strike me as being impossible, except that it's only a 12-page paper. So Craig has a life crisis, and he does the unthinkable for him because he's an incredible workaholic. He just goes away. He leaves the office. He doesn't call in. He doesn't check in. And there is kind of a theme of things happening when people leave the office. So I guess the message is... Never leave, except, well, eventually you'll have to. But, uh, you know, he, he eventually he's sort of trying to think, well, did anything happen? And on page 193, uh, he learns, the workday passes like any other. So, I'm sorry, this is the next day after he's had his unexplained absence. The workday passes like any other. No one even mentions his disappearance of the day before. And Kathleen doesn't seem to remember that he never returned her calls. At newspapers, what was of the utmost importance yesterday is immaterial today. And that's very true and a kind of a weird aspect of working even vaguely in the news. But it's such a contrast with the way that, you know, certainly Ornella is responding to the paper for her, there's no, you know, she's incapable of distinguishing between what was important yesterday that we've, we now are ready to forget and, you know, the great issues of our day. Right. I mean, she's a reader who's incapable of, of running triage on the newspaper, <laughs> exactly. right? right. Which, which are the important things to read and which are not. And in some ways, the, the business that we're reading about is incapable of running triage on itself, yes. deciding which things are important to spend money on and not. And when you mentioned, June, the sort of the the there is a lot of importance to what happens when people leave the office. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, there's a sense we get that's heightened because it's an English language newspaper in a in a foreign country of the offices. What is it? It's not exactly like a bunker. It's somewhere it's part bunker, it's part clubhouse. It's part embassy too, you know, they somewhat say Italy is out there or, you know, whatever. Here, it's, uh, you know, it's no man's life. Yeah, the, in one of the portions about the history of the paper, they note that they put over the elevator bank, Lasci ogni speranza, chiuscite, like who, whoever's leaving here for Italy. It's like Italy lies outside. Right. And that they would say, oh, we're, anybody want a sandwich, we're, we're going to Italy. Yeah. And I think it goes towards the way in which the book is not interested in the business of newspapers, but it is interested in sort of the culture of them mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think is strictly satirical. It has a view that's perhaps it's a little bit rosy. It maybe shares something with a kind of a, a sort of a boarding school novels that sort of these are folks who are in a club together uh-huh. which sort of makes them comrades. There's sort of 
you know, it would be sort of easy to refer to them as a dysfunctional family. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're sort of they're a bit apart, and there's a romanticism to that, which is. You know, well, if, if you're going to get romantic about something, why not that? I suppose it's partly unearned, and I would also venture that that's um, among the reasons that the uh, reviews of the book have been as rapturous as they have been is that book reviews are written by writers who tend to romanticize this kind of thing. Well, and who are working for sections that are under the exact pressures under which the uh, the newspaper here finds itself, right? I mean, those are you know, those are sections that Just are as cutting doomed. pages. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys about that. I mean, here we are. We've all seemed to have had a somewhat middling response to this book. It's an enjoyable read. There are parts of it will drive you mad. It's a bit uneven. None, like of us, none of us have seen to write. Maybe we need our readers to run triage on the book themselves and just <laughs> we can tell them which chapters to go for. But I was going to ask whether you thought that the positive response have to do with the fact that we're living in a sort of twilight era for newspaper journalism in particular and that it's just a book that's come along at the right moment to get these raves. I, yeah, I think, um, I mean, just as the way that, you know, if news happens to journalists, if, if journalists, something happens to them, it gets more coverage than if it happens to, I don't know, jockeys. So, yes, I think it is inevitable that a book about newspapers will be read and appreciated by journalists who tend to be the type of people who write and publish book reviews. I haven't seen much uh, critical response from people who aren't in the business. I mean, it's hard to find that kind of response. Uh, And I do wonder what general readers will think. I think they'll enjoy the book. I just wonder if, I really wonder what, if they will have the same kind of sense of outrage as well as the... The fondness. Yeah. Right, and well, and some of the jokes that felt a bit hackneyed to someone who's heard journalism. A lot of journalism jokes might play better with readers like yeah. that. I mean, the fact that, you know, the one one week note in the Herman Cohen uh, copy corrections editor chapter was that the things he was mad about included literally which exactly. I just, it's like a kind of, it's like the oldest stalest yeah. copy editor joke in the book. Yeah. I'm really picking nits here. No, but really if, I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that though like, it's aspects of the delusion you know, why is this guy writing about writing a note for the style bible about literally anybody who writes that yes they should be fired but surely they would never be hired it's just another kind of example of this terrible paper and these people who think they're good at their jobs and they're obviously not yeah i mean i think in some ways maybe you can make the argument that this is a book about loneliness and delusion because the industry itself is is uh, full of lonely, delusional people, and itself is built on a delusion at this point, and and maybe there is sort of a thematic coherence there beyond what what one initially senses. But I do I, I think we should stop briefly to talk about the kind of the curse of the front page debut fiction rave in the New York Times Book Review. I feel like every four to six months, the Times Book Review has a one of their regular critics just completely go nuts for debut fiction. And it's an incredible curse. I have never read one of these books after reading one of those reviews and enjoyed it. It's just the curse of expectations. And I think it's also a bit of a curse of the kind of the fiction marketplace at this Mm -hmm. point. There isn't an expectation that a lot of people will either publish or go out and read debut fiction. So if you're going to write about it in your book review, you you tend to want to only review it if you have someone who wants to really make the case that this is the best thing since sliced bread. It's just such a great novel. You're crazy if you don't read it. And as a result, this like nice and in some ways well-observed collection of short stories, it's just saddled with these terrible expectations. It makes me so sad. I, mean, I think this happened too with that 
what was the book a couple years ago? Special Topics in Calamity Physics. Yes, that book. That's another one of the ones I'm thinking of, which also was an, an interesting debut that did not deserve the, the utter raves that it was granted on the front page of the Times Book Review. But, you know, hey, I'm sure people who wouldn't have bought it and enjoyed it did so on the strength of that unremitting rave. So, you know, well, maybe hey. they bought it, but then didn't weren't they annoyed by its its precociousness? I mean, I don't maybe know. I don't know. You know the, this book has spent some time on bestseller list in a way that I don't think can strictly be attributed to you know, sort of a pure momentum from reviews. In the review, Christopher Buckley sort of compares these stories to the work of like Saki and O. Henry and Roald Dahl, and I don't think that Tom Rockman is in the same league as those right. people, but he does have. Uh, sort of a similar project and what I initially found attractive what I still find attractive about the the stories individually is uh, I was stumbling towards trying to sort of define this before is that they've got a particular kind of poise they're not really like highbrow literary but they are literate and they sort of have these you know sort of nicely placed ironic twist and they stop on a dime in a way that sort of harkens back to sort of what a lot of fiction was like when glossy magazines generally published uh, you know, short stories. The, you know, the story that's at once, it's light but semi-serious. And it has it. some nicely observed lines, as you said. Yeah, I mean, I think that... Criti- it's a nice snack. Yeah, yeah. And Buckley, I think, although I, it seems crazy that he would suggest a second reading. But at the same time, I can... I believe that it would stand up to a second reading. I mean, it does have a lot of themes that it doesn't, like, cram down your throat. It weaves them pretty artfully. So, yeah, I, I, I see a real quality in it. Right. There's an assurance in the work, and mm. it's working in a register that's unusual. Right. And I'm, I'm suggesting that perhaps the commercial success of the book is a testament to the public hunger for mm. that kind of thing. Right, that sort of you don't want there to always be the wild divide chasm between, you know, literary fiction and chiclet or, you know, beach reads. That there's sort of there, that that figuring out where to put books that lie in some kind of middle ground of light and entertaining, but not without aspirations, Mm -hmm. they're they're a bit hard to come by. All right, Troy, you've slightly brought me around (laughs) on my lukewarmness on this book, I think. Are we going to assign letter grades now? So the imperfectionist is imperfect. Is that uh, a soundbite to quit on? That sounds like a good verdict. (laughs) Yes. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, discussing it with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.